Hello everybody and welcome to our new podcast in age order. I am Matthew Hurd. I am David Hurd. I'm Amy Hurd. And I am Jonathan Hurd. And together we are The, the Hurd Mind. Mind. We'll fix it in post. Alright, so what are we doing here guys? I don't know if our listeners will have picked up on this, but we are, um, as you may have noticed from uh, our surnames, actually all uh, siblings. We live in very different parts of the country, um, which is England. You can also probably tell. Ranging from uh, South Devon all the way up to South Yorkshire. If you want to tell them where we live, they might stalk us. Well, now I'm scared, so thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) We don't see each other very often, but when we do, um, it's almost a tradition now to hang out in a kitchen and talk till three in the morning about pretty much nothing. Uh, you know, nerdy nonsense um, about films and TV and whatever's going on at the time. And we realised we were doing that, and it was just floating off into the ether and getting wasted, and I think there was some pretty good stuff in there. Um, so, uh, Amy, you have been pushing for this for a while, so would you like to tell us why? Um, well, because we all sort of have the same opinions about these kind of things, so talking to each other about it, just well, we all agreed with each other, so I don't know, I thought other people might want to hear them. They probably don't, but, you know, they might. So as as our inaugural uh, podcast, we've decided to talk about the thing that we probably talk about more than anything else in the world. Um, yeah. We recently met up for right. Bonfire Night, um, which, for those who don't know, is a celebration of a guy who tried to blow up the British Parliament that this country holds once a year. I think we celebrate the fact he got caught, not... not we're not celebrating him. Yeah, I'm not so into that anymore. Um... <laughs> I'm feeling V for Vendetta more all the time. You can't let it get political, man, here. <laughs> no politics um, until we get to episode three. Uh, so um, we met up for Bonfire Night, and our poor cousin Cameron uh, had to put up with the four of us, more or less, yelling at him um, about why he was wrong about Star Wars for pretty much an hour of that party, because we were all a little tipsy. Sorry, and, Cameron. Uh, yeah, sorry, cousin. But yes, we're going to talk about Star Wars. Um, specifically, we're going to talk about uh, Episode 7, um, The Force Awakens, which came out a couple of years ago. Because Episode 8 comes out very soon. We're recording this now. A couple of us actually have a cold, but we're running out of time because the new episode comes out in about a week's time. Um, and we want to be able to see that and record our thoughts about it afterwards. So these are our thoughts going into it of how we feel about the uh, the saga so far, and more specifically how we feel about episode seven, which I'm not going to spoil, but we all we all have pretty similar feelings about. I think. Yeah, I think that's probably yes. true. Yeah. Yes. Um. So I think I think the best place to start is to talk about why we talk about Star Wars more than anything else, which is that I think we all have quite close relationships with this uh, with this franchise and this property. So uh, we should talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, picking someone at random, David, what's your relationship with Star Wars um, and how do you feel about it? Um, yeah, first time I ever saw Star Wars, I can't remember how old I was. So me, Matthew and our dad went to see it at a local cinema where they were playing the original trilogy over a bank holiday. So um, all three films one day after the other. Um, I think I think that was 1997 because it was the it was the special edition re-release. I think. Okay. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and that was, you know, and um, yeah, it was good. <laughs> Succinct. I like it. 
Yeah. Uh, and I remember The Phantom Menace coming out and just being really excited about that. Uh, our uncle was the first person to ever see it in, in our immediate family. Uh, and he came round and he was telling us how amazing it was, you know, to actually see proper lightsaber fights and all these powers we'd never seen before in this universe. And that kind of, you know, that excitement that he just had for it really made me want to see it even more. Uh, and then when I did, again, absolutely loved it. And the other two were pretty good as well. The problem is when so- when you love something so much and then somebody says, but why? And you're like, well, because I do. And it's so hard to say exactly why. Because it's good. JJ, was that you starting? I, I can- I'm happy to go next if that's all right. Okay. Right, I, I think um, Star Wars was like really influential on me as a kid because um, uh, I remember. I think I think I remember the Phantom Menace coming out. I remember people being really excited about the Phantom Menace, and I remember that Matthew, my eldest brother, Hi. was doing an art project at school based on the work of Doug Chiang, who is a concept artist, and he worked on uh, he worked on the Phantom Menace and. My brother had a lot of his work lying around, and a lot of Doug Chang's work lying around, and I, it was just so cool to me because I got a real sense of the 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 depth behind the Star Wars universe and the wealth of stuff that went into creating it. And I, I think, like Matthew, had a really massive effect on me because uh, a, a lot of my life and training or whatever has gone into art, and I think. Yeah, uh, and I think it, it has been really influential on me, and uh, just my love of it went from there because I saw the Phantom Menace, and it was it was bright and it was loud, and I was young and it was cool, and there were spaceships. And then as I got older, my respect for it just deepened, and uh, I I saw the originals, and it just made them more terrific because I could see the how far they'd come from the the old special effects and the new special effects, and. Uh, I know some people these days don't like them, but I, I, I could see the 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 development of the of it as as a universe and as technology, and it was just it was it was really cool, and I loved every second of it. Amy, okay. Um, well, I think the first time I saw Star Wars, I think it was David and Matthew had been out for a walk with your friend. Um, I don't know how hard it was, but you'd um. Yeah, you've been from walking in the woods and you'd stood on a wasp nest and then you'd oh, come God. home and you were all covered in wasp stings and it, you'd had the worst day ever. Um, and then to cheer yourself up, you w- watched um, Empire Strikes Back. Um, and I sat and watched it with you and I think that was the first time I saw it. Um, and then I think, I can't remember, I think I just really liked it and I kept asking you questions about it and because it was something that you lo- you know, you know, loved so much, you were really happy to tell me about it and you are excited to tell me about Star Wars and things. And then, um, yes, then I watched the others. I don't know, I saw all the pre- I think I think the Attack of the Clones was the only one I saw at the cinema, but I remember being really excited to see it. Yeah, and I just I just love it. And um, I think it was something that we all loved together, which I think was a big part of it. And, um, you know, we used to play, like, Lego Star Wars together and stuff when that came out yeah. on the computer, and it was just something that I think connected the four of us. I don't know, and I guess it just grew from that. That leaves me, I suppose. That does. That leaves you. Um, the first time I saw Star Wars as a whole was the same time as David, which is that special re-release for the special editions where they played um, 
A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi over three days uh, at cinema. So we went to cinema each of three days to see one film. And because we were seeing them in rapid succession and never seen them, it was sort of building and it was amazing. And and like they got more money and they got more special effects as time went on. And they built um, up to the most amazing space battle I'd ever seen, which is the end of uh, Return of the Jedi. What's really weird is... I know I'd seen Star Wars before that, because when I went in, I had knowledge of Star Wars. All I, all, I say I'd seen Star Wars. All I know for certain I'd seen was the ending of Empire Strikes Back. So the one scene of Star Wars I'd seen was the I am your father scene. So there were no surprises in Star Wars for me, because that was the only bit I'd ever seen. But even just that, I had really vivid memories of uh, the fight on the bridge, um, and Luke hanging from the aerials on the bottom of Cloud City, um, and Luke and Vader like communicating through the Force when he's on the ship flying away, and of course the galaxy at the end. So that stuff and the robotic hand, that stuff. Even though that's all I'd seen, that had already like made an impression and stuck with me. Yeah. So the first time I saw Star Wars, I I don't, I just don't think I'd seen anything like it. There was nothing else like that. There is more like that now, but even in even then in 1997, I don't think I'd seen anything like Star Wars. Um, and I realised, and we've all talked about it in these terms, I realised I think I connect with it in a different way to other people. Because other people talk about the characters, other people talk about how great Han Solo, and usually is Han Solo, but people talk about how great Han Solo is, and how amazing a villain Vader is, and how strong a character Leia is, and people talk about how Luke is whiny, and I never, I never really noticed any of that, because what, what pulls me into Star Wars is the world and the universe and seeing this amazing place I'd never seen with all this technology and um, I just wanted to be there and I wanted to experience it. Seeing it over three days like that probably helped because I was immersed in it completely and every moment I wasn't at the cinema I was thinking about the next day and oh my god what's going to happen what I'm going to see. So it, it, was the, it was the ships and the designs and the aliens and Mos Eisley Cantina and all this stuff that spoke to me rather than what was actually happening and it's it's a really big important thing for me because that was one of my biggest bonding experience with friends at school as well as I'm learning now with you guys I suppose it's always been with there been there for me with you so I've never really thought about how much it influenced us as as like a I was going to say as a collective, like the Borg then, but you know what I mean. As a, as a herd mind. Exactly. But this was this was pre-internet, so like at school, I'd seen Star Wars and some friends, some pe- some other people had seen Star Wars and that was the thing we bonded over. And I don't really remember having real friends. I had like childhood friends, which is just the people you play with because they live on the street. Um, it's not like friend friends, but like these guys, we didn't have the internet yet. So the only source of information was like books on Star Wars. And one of them had a Star Wars book collection. One of them, one of the others had like a giant thick encyclopedia on Star Wars, which had way more stuff outside the scope of the films. Like all this stuff that happened afterwards from games like TIE Fighter and X-Wing and all the books, like they knew about uh, Jason and Jaina Solo. And so I was reading all the stuff and learning about all these things. And all of that was just impossibly cool. And then the prequels came out, and I think they were well-received-ish at the time, and it's slid downhill. I don't think they were loved, but they weren't hated the way they are now. But I, I never felt that with the prequels either, because as much as I think the scripts aren't as strong, and maybe the characters aren't as strong, and they probably aren't as good as films, they don't hold together as well as the original trilogy, the world is even bigger. The world's even more interesting. You see the, like, Coruscant and the Senate, and you see how the Emperor came to power, um, and you see all these new fantastic worlds, and pod racing was the coolest damn thing I'd ever seen. And 
yeah, Star Wars is a world that pulled me in in a way I don't think anything else has, except, and here's, here's a weird thing that me and David were into for a while, Lego Bionicle. No, not really sure why, but that was a thing. Um, but Star Wars, Star Wars is something else. It was this enormous universe, but if you wanted to know where that ship was made because you really liked that ship, you could look it up. It was a thing, and there was information on that, and that would lead to other discoveries. And it was like falling down a Wikipedia hole before Wikipedia was a thing. And I just loved all of it. And then there's the games and all this stuff. Um, what, what, what do you guys feel about stuff outside of the films themselves? You've spoken about how you got into the films, but like, what about uh, games and books and things like that? Um, I remember one of my first EU things was Matthew had a copy of um, Jedi Knight Jedi Out- Outcast that I think he'd got from someone at school. Yeah, this this was in the wild west of CD swapping games. Yeah, I'm sure um, it was legal. Yeah, as JJ said, obviously we had the um, uh, novelizations on cassette. Uh, we also had we always bought uh, the visual dictionaries and the encyclopedias oh, yeah. for the films that came out. So, and obviously there were things in there that weren't in the films. So you found out a bit more information. Yeah, and that was sort of my main interaction with things outside of the core films and obviously playing Jedi Knight Jedi Outcast led to Jedi Academy um, and some, we somehow stumbled across Knights of the Old Republic as well uh, and again that leads into you know what Matthew was saying as to why it's so appealing is it was a whole different look at the universe you know you saw um, technology you'd never seen before planets you'd never been to uh, a whole section of that history that had never been explored before um and you could actually you know because it was an rpg um it was just so it was as immersive as um as sitting in the cinema and yeah since the rise of the internet and wikis yeah that uh, immersion in the eu has just got you know more and more with uh, with wikipedia probably visited more than wikipedia uh, <laughs> and you know and yeah, the stuff that is available there, and the fact that every character or object has its own page, and you know, not just a stub. It's there's there's always detail. You, you know, you can, and then from there you get you lead into other pages and things. It's it is just an endless world. It is as in depth, you know, as as a, a real history. Really, there's so much thought and passion and connectivity in the EU that you can't not get sucked into it. I think, and it's. Yeah, so it sort of started with Jedi Outcast, you know, to say, look, there's more than just these films. Uh, and from there, it's uh, it's never stopped, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, like I say, we're all talking about it as, as a universe. We're not really mentioning specific characters or anything, because I don't think no. that's what mattered so much to us. I do love Luke and Han and Leia and Vader and all of it, but it wasn't, it wasn't, what we were there for. It, it wasn't exactly the, the selling point that most appealed to us. No. Yeah. And uh, and that, world, that world's been consistent and stable and incredibly well curated, which I think is a big part of it. Like, there was a guy whose only job in the world was to make sure that nothing contradicted anything else. And if there was a contradiction, to pin down which version was the correct version going forward for all other media to follow. Well, should we name the uh, Keeper of the Holocrons? Uh, that's Leyland Chi, I believe. And yep. we love him very much. We do. Um, <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you for your service. <laughs> um, but, but what we just said, all of that 
is and was true until about three years ago, because then something happened. <laughs> and this is this is the thing that upset us most. <laughs> it's it it sounds like an exaggeration, but I think episode seven broke my heart um, a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah because th- what you were just saying about the 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 cultured and nurturing growth of the Star Wars universe, I think that was just cut off and in a really <sighs> upsetting way, and it's it was just ignored. All the hard work that had gone into it was just ignored, and and it was painful to all of us. <laughs> Um, so that's that's where this discussion is going to go now. Is into into uh, a deeper look at episode seven than we've had a, a look at the other um, episodes. And how do we want to start that off? Um, well, should we start with the the, the things we actually did like in episode seven? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not it's not all bad. Yes, that, yeah, that the the huge list of things we loved in episode seven. <laughs> I mean, there's some good stuff in there. There, read. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Um, so, Amy, you uh, you said you wanted to speak about what you liked about the film, so go for okay. it. Okay. Well, I liked um, I liked Poe Dameron because who didn't? Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> Very charismatic. Yeah, yeah, and I, he was a lot of fun, and I I just liked him a lot. Uh, I really really liked Finn. I thought he was a lot of fun. Um, and. I really liked when Finn and Han were together at the end and they're trying to um, rescue Rey. Uh, That's not how the Force works. Yeah, all of like the sort of the banter that they had, I thought was very good. Um, And again, that was a lot of fun. So what I liked about those three things is they were fun. But there are still problems, like certainly there's a lot of problems with like Finn's motivation and his character and things like that. Um, But he was very fun and he was very enjoyable. And I, I, you know, I do want to see more of him and things like that. But um, yeah, unfortunately, that's kind of it. This is the interesting <laughs> thing, I think. Um, stuff we liked in episode seven. You just mentioned all the characters, whereas before we were saying that wasn't such a big selling point for us. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I genuinely believe that's a big part of why episode seven's been received well. Where we, the herd mind, have all settled on sort of slightly differing levels of hatred is um, other people who do watch the original series and watch it because they love Han and Leia and Vader um, and Luke. Poor Luke, who always gets left to last. Uh, And Chewie! Oh god, I keep forgetting Chewie! And Lando. And Lando. But people who watched Star Wars and watched it for the characters and their stories and their interactions are getting that from the new series. They are getting that from episode 7 because the characters are fun to be around and do get to do cool stuff. Uh, and I, I enjoy spending time with them. I think that this is the J.J. Abrams factor, isn't it? Is that J.J. Abrams is incredibly good at casting likeable people and is incredibly good at keeping the pace flowing so that those people you like are constantly doing something uh, so there's no time to sit around and watch them uh, and, like, question what's going on. 
you know, in in Star Trek, it's a cast you you really enjoy. They're really well cast for the parts they're playing. Um, they're all fun. They're all fun. They all get fun things to do. But the minute there's a lull, immediately we're moving from action to action to action. Uh, so it's fun because it's. Uh, I was going to say momentum. I don't think that's a word, but it has momentum. Propulsive is what I meant. Um, so it drives you along. And uh, there's fa- there are good characters that you enjoy and like being around. Like they've all got really great chemistry. But I I think it's hard to sort of like fairly judge um, like Ray as likable because I I think her character is very underdeveloped and um, isn't really a character much at all. So I think it's quite hard to say. Um, to sort of judge Daisy Ridley fairly because I think she suffers because of her character. It it does feel already here that we're moving into negatives. So do you do you want to go into that now, Amy, and uh, talk about the negatives of Ray? Set us off. Um, Set yeah, us all I, the I guess I think I just don't really think she's got a character really at all. She's not. She's good at everything, um, and that that's sort of about it. She. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what what more can you actually say about her? Really, she's not. She's very one-dimensional, and that one-dimensional is good at everything. And um, you know, and I, I think everybody was very excited that it, that it was going to have a female lead and stuff. And um, but I think maybe she's she's written to be the strong female lead that that they didn't actually give her a personality. Wouldn't you say that's true of all of them, though? Doesn't it feel like... Uh, uh, Finn po... and Poe have got a lot more personality than Ray does. Mm, but Poe po is just... His entire character are, His entire character is... He's a good dude. He's a yeah, good I mean, they're, they're, dude. They are still one-dimensional, but I think... I do think they've just got more personality than Ray. Um, and I think... And she's... she's she is good at everything, but a lot of the things she's good at, it wouldn't really make any sense for her to be good at. Like, she keeps saying that she's a pilot, but she, I, I don't really see how she's a pilot when she's Yeah, she's been, she's, she's a scavenger. She's been a scavenger she, her yeah, whole and, life. And then and Finn says, we need a pilot, and she yeah. says, we've got a pilot, but, but I don't really understand how she's a pilot. And then she's amazing. The Millennium Falcon hasn't flown for years and years and years, and then she can suddenly fly it, and she's amazingly good at it, and I just, it didn't really make any sense. And- and and the bit when Han Solo, um, he can't figure out what's wrong with his ship, the ship that he's uh, modified for decades and he's been working on for many years, the 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 ship that he made into one of the fastest in the the galaxy, and he can't figure out what's wrong with it, and then she t- turns up and she's like, oh, I I did this and it works again. Yeah, and then the way she picks up things about the Force, even though she didn't actually, she thought the Force was a myth until about five minutes ago, but she can do a Jedi mind trick without using a hand wave or even looking at the guy, which we've never ever seen before, and she's never, would she even know what a Jedi mind trick, has she even been told she's Force sensitive at that point? She just, she's just able to do everything, and I just, I almost feel like they were like, look strong woman, and didn't give her any personality, and actually... Also, here's a question. Why was she repulsed, so repulsed at the beginning by the idea of the Force when um, Tangerine Head, when Maz Kanata was like, uh, oh, (laughs) (laughs) 
when she was like, uh, oh, uh, you are force sensitive. Here, have a lightsaber. And she's like, wait, what? Nah, none of that. And was what? absolutely repulsed by the idea. Why was that? That seemed to come out of nowhere. I have a theory here. Um, but it's a theory that it's a theory that applies sort of across the board. This theory applies to Finn as well, which is that you can see the shadow of what their character arcs were supposed to be. You can see like the edges of what they were trying to do with these characters. Like Finn is the same. The same problems exist with Finn, which is that he's a stormtrooper who uh, sees combat for the first time. And uh, another stormtrooper dies beside him, and that horrifies him so much that he doesn't want to be involved anymore. And the way his not wanting to be involved anymore manifests is by shooting as many stormtroopers as he can. Mm. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like he doesn't. He doesn't even have a. He doesn't even have a dilemma about doing it either. He just they're bad guys now. Yeah, he's like. He immediately lies to Phasma and then uh, helps a criminal, a fugitive, break out of holding. And, yeah, and just does it immediately defaults to the other side. He doesn't like, actually, I want none of this. He's like, well, hey, now I'm on the others. Now I'm on the opposing force. Yeah. And it feels like. I, oh, so, well, I mean, he does, oh, he does join. No, because it, it does. That's not fair on my part, actually. He does, um. Because he does want no part of it, but then he's like, actually, this lady who can get me off planet thinks I'm a resistance member. Sure, let's play the resistance member for a while. Yeah. And so he doesn't just default to the resistance here. There is a little bit of uh, building up to that. I think that I think the best thing about Finn is the way he uh, just... He's basically pretending to be a resistance fighter partly to get off world, but also partly just to impress a girl, which is... Just fun. Uh, but you can see where that character's supposed to be. You can see that it's supposed to be uh, this guy who uh, was involved in the war, doesn't want to be anymore, and is now on the run from the First Order. And his every motivation is about getting away from them. And when they get to Maz Kanada's bar, he wants... He's telling them, they will come for us, they will kill us, we need to get off world now. And he spends his whole time running from them. But that's undercut by the fact that he immediately is shooting people and running around and he jumps in the Falcon's gunnery seat and is shooting things going, woo! And then afterwards runs out into the hall, meets Ray, and is like, that was amazing, that was so cool, how great are we? That was combat. That was the thing he was trying to get away from. And it feels like... Yeah, but we didn't want him to be a downer. We wanted him to be fun, and that feels like a J.J. Abrams thing to me. That feels like we got to ru- we we need the audience to like feel energized and like we we got to keep them moving, and so it's it's got to be fun at all times. And the characters are fun, but that actually undermines what else they're trying to be, which I think is the Ray thing, is that she wants to get off world, uh, but the thing keeping her there is she wants her family to come back, but. What that all that's that's Luke Skywalker. That's like he wants to get off world, but oh, there's this thing keeping him at home, which oh, I gotta go back, I gotta look after the farm, I got things to keep me here. And she does feel like that. Like when Han offers her a job, she's like, that would be amazing. Oh, but I gotta get back in case my family come. Ugh. Um, and that that 
feels as though the arc should be, she is terrified of leaving for even a minute. She's got all those scratches on the inside of her ATAT, marking off the days when she hasn't been picked up, but she knows they're coming. One day they're going to come and she can't afford to miss them. She should be terrified to leave. Like, that feels like the driving force that was written into the character. And so when she gets the lightsaber and they're like, you have a destiny uh, elsewhere in the galaxy, she's like, she's already like, been away anxious. too long and she needs to get back. She's anxious to get back because her family might come. And then the payoff when Finn comes, Finn and uh, Han come back for her and she's like, you came back for us. That would mean so much more if we'd actually seen her struggling with her family not coming back rather than it just being a thing that gets mentioned now and again. Wow, yeah, I didn't even make that connection that um, them coming back for her. I know she says, oh my gosh, you came back for me. I, I didn't even make a connection that that was supposed to be some yeah. uh, big moment for her that uh, she was abandoned by her family and she has abandonment issues and all that. I didn't I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of that in the film. There's like, when Kylo Ren gets shot with, this is entirely different and we're suddenly venturing out of characters, but when Kylo Ren gets shot by Chewie's bowcaster, that's supposed to have been set up by the fact that Chewie's bowcaster gets fired and mentioned so many times. Uh, we see Kylo Ren get shot, but it doesn't. It doesn't like close up on the bowcaster. It should. It should show him flying backwards like those stormtroopers did. So when he sits back up again, we know. Oh, he's got a serious injury from a serious weapon, and he he's still going because he's powered by hate instead of just like he got shot in the shoulder, like in any cop drama, you know? Yeah. It's not the. Sh it's not the shoulder. It's like the rib cage. But then. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but then he's acting. Then when he does his punchy thing to try and psych himself up and get get over the wound, like. It feels like he should be visibly in pain and not at his best. Like, yeah. he should visibly like, be struggling to fight these people, because otherwise there's no excuse for uh, if, being, if, Finn being able to hold his own for a couple of seconds, you know? Yeah, if he wasn't yeah. fueled by hatred, he would be crippled. Well, the more obvious thing to do would, would have actually to have him be shot in the shoulder, and then he could only fight with one arm, and that's an instant visual... That's really good. Yeah, You know, tell of the audience that he's... He's instantly um, been limited, but no, instead, he punches himself, and it shows the blood on the snow, but the injury doesn't seem to factor into the fight at all, so they, no. they telegraph oh, it no, at the very start, but then, then there's nothing in the fight itself, because we've never actually seen him in a lightsaber fight, fight before, power. so we don't yeah. actually know that his quality is supposed to be reduced but if if he you know yeah. clearly had one hand behind his back because it's been you know because it's wounded that would be yeah an instant visual visual tell for the audience but we've got nothing to gauge on unfortunately and it just looks like he's the worst sith apprentice ever although he's not he's not <laughs> sith is he's a uh, yeah no we don't friend, we don't use the words so. jedi and sith anymore yeah the jedi the jedi have to end or whatever <laughs> uh but yeah, that David, the reason the reason we're talking about that in relation to Finn and Ray is how like Finn's decision to like come back into the fold of the resistance after he was going to leave mm. uh doesn't feel like a major decision because he hasn't actually been that bothered about getting away. It came up once at Maz's diner. Mm. And it's not also, we have we haven't felt his fear because if he was overcoming that fear to go back and save Ray, that would mean so much. That's not what it feels like. It feels like a battle started and he just started killing stormtroopers. Yeah. Also, should we should we point out that um, Finn's arc is a cheap knockoff of Han's arc in Episode Four? 
everything's a cheap knockoff of everything in episode four. <laughs> yeah, think about it, because he, um, he's trying to avoid conflict. He's just a smuggler trying to get by without getting involved. And then he gets involved, and he wants to get out of there as quick as he can. But then, oh, his loyalty to his friends and his moral compass and all that bring him back at the last minute. See, and I... that has impact in the film because, well, of the way that the last scene plays out. So, yeah, it's Finn. They tried to go for the same thing, and they did it poorly. I I honestly hadn't thought of that. That's brilliant, actually. Um, yeah. Another, an, yet another parallel with episode four. Yeah, and and the same, uh, the same with Ray, who feels very much like Luke Skywalker because of the way. Rather than being afraid to leave, she's like, "Oh, I gotta get back and tend to my moisture farm and get some portions." Uh, she 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 feels like Luke Skywalker when the setup and payoff should be that she's afraid to leave and not like wanting to be out there. That she's she she just wants her family back. But um, no, we see her daydreaming about ships leaving and stuff, and it just it just feels like the wrong and. Why that is could be a number of things, but on the one hand, you've got J.J. Abrams, who his primary thing that he's good at is making characters fun. Not good, but fun. So I feel like he might have taken that stuff out or sidelined it to make the characters more fun and more likable, in inverted commas, rather than giving them these emotional arcs. Um, and on the other hand, it does feel a little like Ray, particularly has been, like, workshopped to death. Like, they were like, our main character, our lead character in a Star Wars film is uh, a woman, and this is a massive big deal. We can't mess this up. Um, and, and like, every line of hers has been micromanaged and, like, no, no, she sounds too vulnerable there. Scratch it, make it so that she does want to leave but is worried about not missing her family. Not that she doesn't want to leave, you know? Like don't yeah. yeah no I I yeah I agree with that I think they were so worried they were so they were trying so hard to get a, a female um, lead right that um, they didn't they didn't actually give her a character at all really and that feeling and I, of... I, sorry go on well there's a big trend recently uh, that it's it's important to acknowledge mental illness and uh, anxiety as a big thing and um, like. People have anxiety leaving the house, like if they if they need yeah. to go down the road for some reason, then that's that's a big deal for them, and they get palpitations, they start breathing heavy, and it's a really horrible situation for them to be in, and they need they want desperately to be back in their house, but for 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 Ray, it's on a galactic scale, and she just wants to get back because oh her family might come to pick her up. It's it's not yeah. on a it could they they could have done something with that um, to make her character not vulnerable, not vulnerable, because she would have overcome it, and that would have been such a powerful thing. And th I think they they missed that there. Yeah, um, if that makes sense. And and instead of that, when she when she gets off world, instead of an oh my god, I'm I'm off world, I've never been off world, they could come back at any moment. Instead, you get that woo, that was so cool, we had a cool space fight woo moment, which is yeah, it's fun, J.J. Abrams, that's really fun, but it's it's not what we needed for the characters right then. Yeah, and the no. whole film feels like that to me. And yeah. she also she drops her. 
need to get back to her family really quickly as well. Yes. She just, I think, I can't remember, is it Maz? Kanata says they're not coming back. Yes. And then she just sort of accepts it after that. There's no, um, it's supposed to be what's driving her, you know, this need to get back and this need to reconnect with her family. But it's not actually a conflict within herself to give that up. She just sort of drops it when the the plot needs her to stop talking about it almost. It's Yeah. It never yeah, it, feels I mean, it like would a make genuine sense for driving her. force for her. Yeah, for her to drop it at the point in which Han and Finn come back to her and she realises that actually these people have come back for her, then it would make sense for her to drop the fact that she has to get back for her family, but she she drops it too early. Yeah. And that 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 also uh, is like it's the first time in her life she's she's entirely self-sufficient which is cool actually like the way every time Finn tries to help her she's just like no get off I can handle this I kind of like that yeah. stuff um, yeah but but the realization on Stark Base should be that she doesn't have to do that because there are now people looking out for her as well she can be self-sufficient but she doesn't need to be because she has like friends she has a family now and and, and that's that's sort of set up at the beginning, then forgotten about in the middle and then comes back again. Because all the stuff when she's in her little 80-80 home, um, making her own bread um, and sitting there watching the sun go down in the helmet, that's what that scene is showing. But that's the only scene that does show it. Also, I'd, I'd like to bring attention to something that Amy said a while ago. Um, I can't remember how you worded it. You worded it really well, but... There's a scene where uh, Ray gets like attacked by some some blokes or something, and Finn's like, "Oh, a lady is in danger. I must help her." But then she fends them off herself, and he's like, "Damn, she's badass." And Amy said, "That's a scene that she's spotted in in loads of films, and she's sick of seeing it." Yeah, it's in. There's a lot of films where the main character is a woman, and then in order for them, rather than show you she's a strong woman that can actually take care of herself through character development they have a scene in which she's um it's you know in a fight scene or something where a man goes i must help them and then the woman takes care of herself and then he looks on and thinks she can do it herself and it just feels it's i think a lot of films do it and it just feels very forced and i Uh, yeah am i I right in thinking it happens in jurassic world does that happen uh chris pratt looks on Uh, yes yes it does um, yeah. And then it's followed up by that scene where the kids want to go with Chris Pratt instead of her, and the internet hates it. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, it has, I do it actually in like Rogue One as well, and um, not, and you know, obviously oh, that's yeah. not to say like what well, that's stupid. Of course, they need a man's help. That is one hundred percent not what I am saying. I just think it's sort of done in everything. It's almost like a shorthand for them to say, "Look, it, this woman is a strong woman," and I, I think actually there's better and more effective ways of doing that. I don't necessarily agree, but John Boyega's reaction sells it for me because he just looking around like, anyone else seen this? This is amazing. Anyone? And then she chases him. And I just love Finn, basically. Finn's yeah, so good. Yeah. Again, he could have, instead of going, oh, I need to intervene. Oh, actually, I don't. Damn, she's cool. He could have been like, I am not intervening at all. Yes. This is what I want to avoid. Again, it's the conflict thing. Yes, exactly. He's just like escaped fights. He doesn't want to be noticed either. Like, that is... There's an argument that his character is just a guy who wants to get out of trouble but can't help himself doing the right thing. But, like, it... 
Yeah. That doesn't fit for the stormtrooper who is trying to escape. Uh, let's face it, the Empire. Like that doesn't yeah. work for him. For me, yeah, because he could have just been like, "Oh no, a woman's being attacked," but I am, I am staying out of it. Avoid it, avoid it. It's not your problem, not your problem. And then looks over and goes, "It's not her problem either." Wow, she's she's done. Okay, cool. Mm. And he would have the same reaction, but it would have the same effect on her character and it would have a b- better effect on his character. Yeah. Um, I think I think we've been talking about the characters now for what might be half an hour. Um, yeah. Uh, we're going to have to cut this down or it's going to end up two episodes. I don't know which is going to happen. But um, something I real about, realised about the characters on only only like last week when I rewatched it, I realised Finn and Ray are the exact perfect characters to introduce us to a new and changed Star Wars universe. This is the first time we've seen the Star Wars universe for 30 years. The opening crawl, which we'll probably get to later, gives us nothing. It is terrible. But we have two characters, one of whom has been indoctrinated from birth by the First Order and has never been outside it, and a second character who has grown up an orphan on this crappy planet and has never been off-world. Those are two characters who through which we can find out more about this universe and see what the state of things are now, 30 years on, right? Yeah. It should be an opportunity to show us exactly what, what the situation is for the little guy. It doesn't matter yeah. what the grand scheme political situation is, but the little guy is having to deal with this right now. But it doesn't do that. Yeah, which it, is it, it barely it doesn't even acknowledge that there has been a gap of thirty years that there's been any change of any kind. Um, which which brings us to the nonsense that is um, the world here, because because yes. Finn and Ray seem to know little bits and pieces, um, but not ones that really make sense. Mm. Like I know this annoys. Is it Amy? Uh, gets annoyed yeah. about what Ray says when she gets onto the Falcon. Yeah. Yeah, because she says, um, she says the Falcon's a piece of junk. Um, Which it is. And then she, when and, Han and, Solo... Well, she doesn't recognise it. She has no idea what it is. She just but, thinks it's a pile of junk. And then when Han Solo turns up, she says, oh my god, you're Han Solo. Does that mean this is the Millennium Falcon? And surely if she knew what the Millennium Falcon was, she'd know that that's what it looked like. I'm. Uh, I'm if, not. S- sorry. But well, then, but if, then the bit that annoys that bit's less annoying than um, when Finn says the uh, the he says I think he says the rebel general, which is fine. Um, and then he says, "Isn't he a war hero?" Um, yeah, it's a Chewbacca. But he has been uh, basically taken as a child and indoctrinated by the First Order. Um. So why would he know that Han was a war hero if he's if he's hearing the First Order's indoctrination? Why would they have told him Han was a war yeah, hero? Wouldn't they have told him that hero, Han was a war criminal? War hero and is it, a just, subjective it's only, term. It's surely. only a little thing, but I just it it doesn't make any sense. I'm absolutely with you. Yeah, and uh, I know um, it's like a, it's like a tiny little it's one line and it's a sort of a stupid thing to get annoyed about, but it I think it just shows the lack of thought that actually went into everything. 
really. Yeah. And well, um, because what you said about uh, what Ray says, oh, um, does that mean this is the Millennium Falcon? Oh my gosh, you're Han Solo. Like the the ship. Certainly at the beginning of Episode Four, the ship is more famous than he is because he's talking to Han, is talking to Obi Wan and Luke, and um, they just think he's some random pilot that can take them where they want to go and he says, well hey now, I've got the Millennium Falcon. You must have heard of it. It's the the ship that completed the uh, Karelian Spice Run in 13 Parsecs. Castle. Sorry. Is he not Is he not just scamming them there? Is he not just like talking it up? Like, oh yeah my, you haven't heard my, of my uh, ship. ship's totally famous. Come on guys so, it's super good. But, um, it, but um, it, it highlights the fact that uh, the ship is the one that, that that co- co- completed the the Kestrel run. Um, Kessel. Not Han Solo. Kessel, sorry. <laughs> I actually am going to uh, fight with you on this. I like the fact that the Falcon is famous, but anyone who sees the actual Falcon wouldn't look twice at that ship and wouldn't think, that's the famous Millennium Falcon. They'd be like, that's a beat-up old Corellian freighter, whereas in, in the Legends... The Falcon, the ship that took down two Death Stars, you know, in in yeah. Legends, it's spoken of as this beautiful, wondrous ship, like nothing else like it. It's the fastest, sleekest thing ever built. And then when you actually see it, it's like it's a crappy old freighter. It's just great. Like yeah, it's yeah. it's more okay, it's more no. Finn's Finn's comment that Han's a war hero that annoys me the most. What what is weird about the Ray thing is that she then says, "You're Han Solo, the smuggler." Which is fine. She grew up on a spaceport around, I assume, CD Moss Eisley style bars, where people would have talked about it that way. But yeah. she's been set up as a rebellion fangirl. She yeah. she lives mm. on a planet full of crashed like stuff from the war. She has a she has an X-wing helmet. She has a plushy X-wing pilot rebellion fighter sat on her bedside. Um. She lives in an eighty-eighty. Like does she, uh, yeah, she totally does. Um, yeah. And so, she, and she's not interested she... in Finn until he says he's with the resistance. Exactly. Yeah, she's true, a yeah. she's a war. I was going to say war groupie. That sounds so gro- so gross. But she is a Star Wars fan, essentially. Right? She's yeah. standing in for us in that situation. She would know that Han Solo fought in the war. So that's weird. Much better than uh, much better than Finn does. Yeah, and and well, then... yeah, Finn Finn would know about him, but he'd have heard the the propaganda, wouldn't he? He's, and actually, I I think her. if he'd, I actually think the film could have gone down a much more interesting route if he'd said Han Solo, isn't he a war criminal? And then yeah. I actually then... think because then Han could have said, didn't you say this kid was resistant? He's not, he's not resistant. And then they could have tied him up and questioned him. And I actually think that could have um that could have taken the film in actually a much more interesting direction, character wise. Um, That's a really cool idea. Yeah, or even if it, no one but Ray had heard it, and Ray, it just highlights Ray's face being like, "Wait, what?" And in, in that would be right in here? a similar way that it would have been a lot more interesting if Finn had been remotely conflicted about killing all them stormtroopers that he just murders. <laughs> um, I, it, I just think actually, if he'd said "war criminal," which would have made more sense, I think it would have been a lot more interesting for his character and for the other characters' relationship with him and things. That's that's really true. That's just, I think I focus too much on that line, but it just annoys me so much. <laughs> I think no, no, I think that whole scene's a problem because the the immediate part after is when they're talking to 
uh, Han Solo about Luke Skywalker, who everyone thinks, who somehow, once again, in a second 30-year period, stuff that actually happened has become myth. Um, although last time the Empire was like putting out misinformation and calling fake news on everything, this time there's no excuse because the rebellion won, so the truth would be out. And there, the Republic are apparently in charge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that. Um, uh, but yeah, she she thinks she thinks Luke Skywalker and the Force are a myth. She's told the Force is not a myth, and then she starts using Force powers pretty soon after. And here's a question, right? Not only how does she know what a Jedi mind trick is if she thought the Force was a myth, how is an audience that hasn't seen the other films supposed to know what is happening in that scene? Mm. Is Does the audience know they, what a they, mind trick is? Yeah, they I said suppose... they wanted to reinvent the, the well, reinvent the um, Star Wars film to get more people on board with it and bring in a new generation, but that is that's a good point. They won't know what's happening. There's a lot of re- references that would go over their heads. It sort of mirrors Kylo Ren sucking ideas out of people's heads. So maybe you can put, you can probably put the connection together, but like it is sort of a reference to something that hasn't been referenced. Yeah, and it, yeah. And it just that strikes me as a little weird. But we should probably get to um, that thirty-year gap where everything's faded into myth, because what the hell is going on in the world? Mm. Well, he, well, the Starcrow would have us believe that the Republic are in charge, but I didn't see any evidence of that at all. <laughs> I, so the, the, the Star the Crawl is the Starcrow for a different film, as far as I can tell, because it is it doesn't make any sense in relation to Episode Seven. It doesn't. No, it, it sounds like the first, it, the the, the Starcrow suggests. The uh, Republic run the galaxy, and the First Order is a fringe, a fringe group operating in the Outer Rim or something that no one takes seriously. Does it say that though? It doesn't tell you that. It's... Does it say what? Sorry. Well, that um, that the uh, the the First Order aren't taken seriously by the Republic. Uh, I don't think it specifically says that. I've heard that since, but I think that's one of those we picked this up up from the books. Thing that yeah. people do. I'm not sure that's in the. I'll, I'll pull up the crawl in a minute and have a look. But I don't think that's actually in there. As far as the crawl s- sounded to me the first time, the uh, resistance is just like the local military op- operation being run in that area to deal with the first order because the republic's big and has other problems elsewhere. Right? That's what it sounded like to me. But later on, you've got Hux's speech, which says that. The resistance are secretly funded by the Republic. What the Republic can't openly uh, can't openly dispute the claim of the Empire. Why? Well, maybe maybe the the Republic uh, has come to an agreement with the First Order, where like, all right, we'll let you govern over, we'll, we'll let you chill if you start making trouble for us. Um, and then and, the resistance and was like, "Hello, we're not standing for this." And then so layers the like working as a guerrilla group, like outside the government. See, that's interesting and cool, and but would have none been of this good information covered, to yeah. know and have. Yeah, none of this is covered. I just, by the... I just can't believe how badly they fudged that stuff. And this is mm. this is the other side of that. Uh, people who love the characters will enjoy it. Part we're it, I I I and we I think are in Star Wars for the world and for the the fleshed outness of that universe. And 
this one isn't fleshed out at all. It's nonsense. Yeah. Um, and and the what is the size of the First Order? What is the firepower of the First Order? The first time I saw this film, I thought the First Order consisted of one base on one planet who had one rather large Star Destroyer and a fleet of TIE Fighters. That's it. That's yeah. I, that's all I thought the First Order was. Um, apparently that's not the case. <laughs> but yeah, the film wouldn't let you know that. Apparently they have enough resources to uh, staff the mining crew that would be cri- required to hollow out an entire planet, or um, the funding to build uh, some sun eater inside yeah. said planet. And, like, that would... Because the the first... Um, the first Death Star took, what, how many years to create? About 15, I think. They're finalizing the plans for it in episode two, and they start construction uh, when he forms the Empire, and they finish construction in episode four. So that, that's a big time scale, and you can only assume that's because uh, they didn't want people to notice the um, the drain on resources that it would be if they built it quickly, because they're yeah. running an empire. They don't want people to be suspicious. Hey, where are all these... Um, where are all these uh, resources going? The energy, the the empire's up to something. They're building yeah. something big. Yeah, and it's just weird that they they seem to have this unlimited supply of resources that just is entirely not in keeping with the the rest of the universe at all. But there, there's a version of this script where that's a mystery, right? There's a, and it's J.J. Abrams, Man of Mystery, Mystery Box Man. Um. There's a version of the script where the reason Leia has taken this chunk of the Republic fleet off into the Outer Rim to fight these guys is because they seem to have more power than they should. We thought the Empire was crushed, but they're coming back with what seems like crazy resources. They shouldn't have the power to do this, and somehow they are. And how is that happening? And we need to find out, and that's why we're here. And all it takes is for Leia to say that to someone... And suddenly all of this makes sense, right? Mm. But she yeah. never does. Nobody no. says that. So everything we're saying is maybe it works like this, because maybe's the best we've got. Yeah. The novelization clears it up, but if your film has to rely on the novelization, your film has failed, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, well, I've just looked up the Star Crawl. Okay. Uh, and it we says, should have had that up at the start, really. Luke Skywalker has vanished. In his absence, the sinister First Order has ridden from, risen from the ashes of the Empire and will not rest until Skywalker, the last Jedi, has been destroyed. So that suggests the First Order wasn't on anyone's radar until Luke went into hiding. How old would you guys say you know, Kylo Ren was when he turned? How far into the 30-year gap do you think that was? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, that's, how that's how long has Luke been missing? Because yeah, I, I thought... Does Han say... Well, how old is Kylo Ren supposed to be? He has to be at least 20, right, I'd say? Yeah, I was going to go for 20. Yeah. Which means that the Jedi Temple... The Jedi Temple can't have fallen maybe 10 years at most. Which means that the First Order were actively stealing children... Oh, wow. ...when Luke was still building a new Jedi Order. Oh, wow. And I, I didn't think of that until re-watching it recently... 
and Finn says, you know, I was taken as a, I can't remember if he says young child or baby, I can't remember, but if we assume every single one of their um, forces were taken as children and gone through that indoctrination process, yeah, they've been, they've been doing that. You have to assume at least some of them are carryovers from the old empire. So the star, the star crawl suggests that um, it's Luke's disappearance that has caused the First Order to rise, but the film itself suggests that the First Order has been a thing, and was a thing, and active while Luke was still around. So, so the film itself doesn't tally with what the information we're given. So it's just such a fudge. It's just yeah. so messy. And then, with the support of the Republic, General Leia Organa leads a brave resistance. But that sounds like that sounds like open support. Yeah, but if there's an evil organization going around stealing children, why would they have to? Why wouldn't the Republic just go right? We're going to take these but guys. But the resistance on. is the name you give to a group that is trying to overcome a dictator, right? That is not that is not the name you give to a group who's trying to destroy a small splinter group. And and I think it's quite simply, I think resistance was as close as they t- could get to calling it the rebellion without actually calling it the rebellion. It's just so underexplained, and I know I know why that is. It's fear that people were really upset when Episode One mentioned trade negotiations. Yeah. So better, and and the entire prequel trilogy is sort of about politics. Really, that's what it's about on a mm. macro scale. So they were like, "We'll keep out of politics because we don't want people thinking about the prequels." But they went too far, and nothing is explained now. Yeah, yeah, it is odd that Hux is more annoyed at the fact that the Republic isn't openly supporting the resistance than yes. is that they're actually being attacked by the resistance like it's and, like and the, it's a massive slight to his like the the fact they haven't publicly yeah. declared their that the republic's at war with the first order is you know that's a real yeah. um that's a personal slight for him and he's got to uh you know and that's the only reason he attacks the republic head on because they've disrespected him <laughs> and it it In a, yeah. just seems really bizarre <laughs> In a way, it almost sounds like if you take the if you take what happens in that scene on its own, it it almost seems like the Republic are unaware of them, mm. and he's he's like, this is propaganda. This is him saying they are our enemy. They are secretly funding the terrorists when actually they're not. That actually that almost plays better. We know from the crawl that the Republic are funding the terrorists, but like that's a bad word to use. I'm sorry, everyone, but. Insurgents. It, insurgents. Insurgents, yes. The the resistance, in fact. But yeah. it, it, it does sound almost like he's lying. The mm. way that scene played. That sounds like propagandistic nonsense to, as an excuse to blow up their home world. Because here's the thing. You blow up uh, Hos, the Hosnian system. Um, yeah. You were fighting the resistance before. Now you are going to be fighting the Republic fleet. Now everyone's coming for you. Like... They weren't open before. Now they're going to be openly at war with you, and they've got all the forces. But apparently, apparently, the first order is really big. But we don't know. Mm. We don't know. Um, also, how obviously was that supposed to be Coruscant, and then they chickened out? Yes, quite obviously. Yeah. The script said Coruscant, right? I still yeah. think there's a script somewhere that says Tatooine instead of Jakku. Well, that was the point. Because <laughs> watching it in the cinema, you know, I was sort of enjoying. It. I was enjoying the characters. Um, the fact it was so derivative was winding me up a little bit. 
but I was sort I was you know looking past it because there was a lot to enjoy. You know, John Williams's scores always a highlight. Just seeing a Star Wars film again because they are so visually yeah. unique. Uh, all of that was really exciting. So I was able to sort of look past the obvious uh, story beats that they'd just taken from Episode Four. But then the point, the second they blew up what was obviously Coruscant just felt like such a punch in the gut to every prequel fan ever. Yeah. Yeah. And from sort of that point on, I've I've found myself sort of unable to enjoy the rest of the film because I it almost, you know, it felt like a personal attack on me really that they they it was a massive middle finger up to anyone that had ever appreciated what George Lucas had done with the prequels and they were just saying, "Look, we're wiping the slate clean. You never have to worry about that. Look, Coruscant's gone." Um, and even afterwards, finding out, oh, it wasn't Coruscant, it was just a planet that looked exactly like Coruscant, didn't didn't heal the wound anymore. Yeah, so. but you have to find that out afterwards as yeah. well. Yeah, they named it the Hosnian system in the film, but I, I must admit that I, even as a, um, you know, Wikipedia reading Reader. Star Wars fan, I couldn't yeah. remember where the um, Coruscant system, system was, Coruscant so I is. couldn't. I couldn't find solace <laughs> in that and be like, oh, thank God it wasn't actually. It wasn't until later that I, ha- I actually looked it up and go, okay, it's not in that system. It was a different planet. Um, yeah, and again, you have to look it up for that information. Yeah. As far as as far as far someone just watching... Yeah, they don't the have planet things. names at the bottom of the screen or anything, do they? No. Also, something that it is apparently elaborated on in uh, the, the wider context of the film, like the novelization or whatever, is that... Um, am I right in thinking that the... Uh, the Republic, so as not to favor, so as not to like show favoritism for just one planet, like the old Republic did, like on Coruscant. The Republic Senate now moves around from system to system and planet to planet uh, to to get a better yes. better idea of. Yes, I'd read that as yeah, well. But that's not explored in the film. Yeah, and does does that also mean that every planet that they um, that the Senate's held on is a clone of Coruscant? <laughs> this one certainly was. Do they do they take all the buildings with them as well when they move the uh, the Senate around? Because <laughs> yeah. it was just visually identical. But I mean, it, it's okay to have yes, stuff that isn't necessarily in the film. Um, mm. You know, that's just expanding on the universe and stuff. But when it actually, when you've left the things that you've left out of your film, actually stops the film working, then yeah. it then it does become a problem. Yeah, no, and, the, and Star Wars is a perfect example of always having extra stuff that isn't in the films. Yeah, uh, outside of them. Yeah, um, but you know, and, and novelizations, yeah, they do quite often have additional material in. But yeah, they're just there to add. They're they're they've yeah, they... always been extra. They're never. But it sounds like from you know what you hear about the novel. You requ- it's required reading to have any basic understanding of what's going on, and that's a fundamental flaw in a in a yeah. film. If if any other, I think if any other film franchise released film that made no sense, and they said, "Oh well, you can just read the book, and then and then it'll all become clear," nobody would support that. But because it's Star Wars, people say they seem to get give it a free pass. Particularly with this yeah. one, just say, yeah. oh well, you know, is, it's, it's all don't weird... don't worry that it doesn't make sense because it's all explained in the book, and it's like, yeah, but. I don't. I'm going to see a film. I shouldn't be re- need to read a book to understand it. I should want to read a book to get some extra bits because that's what Star yeah, Wars has always been about: buying the visual dictionaries, which, yeah, which buying the art, buying the encyclopedias. You know, you get those extras, yeah. but it feels like 
yeah, the, these novelizations of uh, The Force Awakens are, are required reading for uh, to actually make sense of the the world they're selling you, and that's um, that's just not right, really. Yeah, I mean, like um, in the case of Harry Potter, you know, there are people who watch the films who haven't read the books and say, "Oh, well, I want to know more about this." That doesn't make quite make sense to me. And in that situation, it's more okay for people to say read the books because it was a yeah. book first. But this was intended, always intended, to be a film primarily. Mm. And yeah. it's just inexcusable that there's stuff in the book that isn't in the film. But um, we, we digress. We're, we're talking about Star Wars, not Harry Potter. <laughs> we are. We're talking about the Star Wars universe, where you can see planets explode from planets. That's just the